COVID-19 safety measures were strictly adhered to at all times during this production. Welcome to our new podcast, The Anku. I'm Yanling. And I'm Sean. And usually on our usual freelance creative exchange podcast, we talk to professionals about how to supercharge their freelance careers. But after speaking to so many people, we were thinking, how did they get so cool? I mean, in order to achieve their successes and fame, they must have been pretty uncool at a certain point. No matter what kind of successes they have, we get our guests to dish out all the awkward moments that led them to where they are now. Some are even putting the cool in uncool jobs. So let's go talk to the uncools. Okay, Yanling, so today's uh, intro is slightly different. We need to be socially distanced. Do you remember those uh, old uh, TV sitcoms that used to be recorded in front of live studio audience? Yes, of course. I practically grew up on them. Like, I came home after school every day and I watched them. Things like Pochakang, Under One Roof. I remember those. Yeah, like, so, you know, my mind was just so blown like, that Singapore actually did live studio audience sitcom mm-hmm. production. And in fact, my mind was so blown. It was the main reason why I'm working TV today, you know. Like back then, they were asking, you know, when you're in primary school and then they ask you like, what do you want to be when you grow up as your ambition? Mm-hmm. And I wrote, oh, I want to go work in TV and work in sitcoms. And then everybody, I promise you, everybody looked at me and said, I was like, ah. <laughs> well, then you'll be very, very excited to hear who's our next guest. So guys, I'm trying not to fangirl over here because I have literally grown up with you, Nicholas Lee. Right now, because it's on Netflix, I have to say, even my niece and nephew know who you are. So I'm famous again. (laughs) It's it's a new wave, man. It's a new wave. If only I can get paid again, it will be perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, know, the jingle really stuck on you. You know, Moses Tim Tara take Nicholas the Yuzwani and then and it it really helped in branding as well, I thought. I mean the whole show. Mm. And they just don't brand the shows like that anymore, I thought. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. They don't. If I'm not wrong, that jingle was actually kinda inspired by some hamburger commercial, maybe a McDonald's commercial at the time. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There <laughs> was a McDonald's commercial at the time. This is like early. Like what? Two beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese on a sesame yeah, street bun. Yeah, Moses yeah. Lim is trying to take Nicholas Lee. Okay, yeah, I, I, can, I can see the, the, the semblance now. So if you want to ever make really cool jingles, memorable jingles that stick with you for 20 years and beyond, fast food ads. It's <laughs> true. That's where they all are. You can't get stronger branding than that. So, and, and it just sticks on you after so many years. And I, I think the whole show is just classic, man. Like right now it's evergreen. Yeah. Before we begin, we we're just talking about how we don't have, you know, such live audience sitcoms made anymore. Yeah. But what do you think made that show Under One Roof so successful then? Oh, there are so many things. So many things. But I think most importantly, it was the fir- very first uh, English sitcom. Uh, and when you're the very first, everybody wants to watch it, right? So when they launched it, they were very clever about how the timing and all that, you know, the, the, the launch of a show was done down to a science. It was after National Day, you launch it at 7.30, and you get huge ratings, and because it has huge ratings, everybody else wants to watch it. Uh, but the other part of it, of course, is the sustainability of the show has to depend on whether the show is good or not. Mm. So it was uh, actually very good on many levels, um, and as a <clears throat> it's a it's a massive team effort. Everything from the scripting, the direction, uh, the sets, and of course the cast, 
all play a part. So on the note of cast, then, so how did Nicholas Lee become Ronnie? Do you mean the process yes. of how I became? I, I, yeah, I mean, or do you? Who were you before? Uh, who were you? Me? Who were you before Ronnie? Ronnie? Then how did you end up with the role of Ronnie? It's a very long process. The casting was several stages. In the end, there were like twenty six guys that were shortlisted for the role, and then I ended up getting the part. A very close second was, uh, of course, uh, Benedict Go. Oh. Close second. Okay, not so close. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the main reasons that I had the quality to do that, I mean, obviously they were looking for somebody kind of my profile. So there are 26 guys with my profile. But I already had about 10 years of experience doing uh, state shows as a host, playing characters, um, doing some radio work. So I actually had a lot of experience going in. I was already 29, playing a 19-year-old. So... Probably had a big part to play. It just came out on camera when I auditioned. Okay, okay. Yeah. So ever since then, then do you think? Uh, I mean, you've gone on to do like a huge amount of stuff that I think after <laughs> and after Anwan Roof, you know, ended. Um, a lot of people didn't know you. You have your own business right now. Um, I did. I yeah. did before Anwan Roof. I did during Anwan Roof. <laughs> I really yeah. didn't know that. So how were you juggling all of that? What, what were you doing? Share with us a little bit and then a day how did you do it? A day in the life of Nicholas Lee on Under One Roof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it depends. Now is very different from then, right? Because mm. now I have a family, I have children. So my life, is, my day is somewhat different. I mean, uh, back in the day, I never woke up at like five in the morning. You know, <laughs> be sleeping till like nine, <laughs> you know. Um, so do you want then or now? Let's start with then. Then. How are you doing it then? Like juggling stuff. Oh, no. I mean, uh, a little known fact is that actors actually spend 90% of their time doing nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. You're just waiting. You go in there. It's a call time, it's like 8 o'clock, you go there, you say hi to everybody, you drink coffee, you eat snacks, you wait. One hour later, you go into makeup, you know. Then you sit in makeup while they do your makeup for 45 minutes, you know. Uh, back then, we didn't have mobiles, uh, so you, you had to do other things, right? And then you wait another hour for the bus, take you to location. You wait another hour before it's your scene. Then your scene takes like 5 minutes. And then you wait another hour until it's your next scene. And then, you know, the day's over. <laughs> so there's a lot of gaps, a lot of spare time in between where you can do things. But in a, in, even in a live studio... Okay, for Under One Roof, was, you know, the routine was very specific. Um, you rehearsed Monday to Thursday, then you were in studio on Friday all day recording. Then the weekends are free. So the first season was very, very... The first two seasons, actually, we followed the uh, American standard mm -hmm. because our our um, consultants were Americans, mm -hmm. right? So we followed the American system very strictly. So you do that week, three weeks in a row, then you break one week. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a month. So you have one week off every month. Mm -hmm. Then you do uh, seven months, and then you have five months off. Well, the script writing team writes the script in that five months you have five months off can you imagine it's better than being a teacher half a year so it so wasn't so much juggling it was just finding time to there was a lot of downtime 
So I would do lots of other things in between, you know. That time, I mean, you've grown. You right now run your own um, uh, agency, agency yeah. as well. Events, yeah. running a lot of agent. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all somewhat related, mm. I think. Um, except that I, I'm not focused on entertainment anymore. It's all really very uh, corporate communications, you know, marketing launches, that sort of thing. Do you prefer that now? Um. Yes and no, yes and no. There's definitely more going for that uh, industry, the mm-hmm. the commercial uh, communication industry has a lot more going for it than entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I would say that I love entertainment, and that's you know I will always love entertainment. But I think I've been sorely disappointed by the way the entertainment uh, ecosystem has not shaped up over the last uh, few decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know that's where I stand on that. So, yeah. I I just wonder as a personal curiosity, mm. you are at least for me and my uh, my peers, right? You are best known for being uh, Ronnie, mm. and then but you do so many other things. Like you yes. mentioned, do you get tired of that? Is that beneficial for you? Or there are some occasions, mm. it's good and bad. It's good to be recognized because people immediately think that they know you, sort of. Mm-hmm. So it breaks the ice already. It's not so good when you're trying to do something very serious and people think you're that person on TV who's not serious <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, your character wasn't the most. <laughs> the guy who's like a complete idiot and everything and screws everything up. Uh, yeah, that's that's not so good if they connect you with that. Uh. <laughs> but I'm sure your kids are watching you on YouTube, uh, on, on YouTube and Netflix and they're like, hey, that's my dad. They don't, they don't. Actually, I tried to make them watch. They're not really interested. Really? Yeah, yeah. But, but on the note of entertainment and especially comedy, you know, everything is mm. very subjective in a sense. Uh, but yet, over the decades, Under One Roof still remains quite a classic and people mm. still find it funny. So what really worked for that show, you thought, that really made it so evergreen? Honestly, we have to go back to a combination of things. Uh, first of all, that was the first show that was really produced with the American system. So they really sort of fine-tuned that down to a science, right? It's a template. Mm -hmm. And uh, we recorded at the same time as friends, by the way, who work on the exact same system. Uh, And then you have the input of all the other people who wrote for, you know, a more local um, audience. Of course, the setting was local and all that. But a lot of people don't know how international our team really was. I mean, we had like, uh, we had Aussies, we had Canadians, we had Malaysians. Uh, it was a very, very mixed um, nationality. It wasn't like, oh, this is made by Singaporeans for Singaporeans. Actually, that's that's really crap. It was, <laughs> it was not at all like that. Some of our directors were Australian, you know, um, and of course, right on top were the Americans. So it was a very, it was a very international production, and I would say that, uh, you know, that there was a very sweet spot in time that first three years where we really had a chance to make something uh, that was you know, going to be of an international standard, despite the fact that the budgets were minuscule, right? That format of sitcom recording is no longer uh, popular anymore, right? I mean, we don't get multi-cam live studio audience yeah. watching. How important was that live studio? It's a very unique uh, method in that uh, you record every show as though it was a play. Because you have a live audience, first of all, um, you you get a lot of energy from them, 
and the timing is affected by the live audience. When you when you break a joke, uh, crack a joke, right, and then they laugh, and then you know you have to actually listen for the laughter to go down before you continue. It's the like instant feedback. Um, yeah, and at the same time, you cannot do more takes than necessary. Mm. Meaning to say, we we hardly ever did uh, more than two or three takes of each scene because the audience is going to get bored, right? Yeah. And watch a scene three times, they're like, come on, guys, get it right. Fuck up. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure, right? <laughs> so it was unique in that sense. But it was, um, I don't think that's ever going to come back. Why do you think that actually you got faced out, actually? And why? I think, you, you know, if you think about it, uh, the first time you ever watch a sitcom, it's kind of weird, right? You're watching a show and then suddenly you hear people laughing. You're like, who are these people? I can't see them. How come got people laughing? Who's laughing? Yeah. <laughs> Then, because it, it was so commonplace at the time, people just sort of got used to it, mm. you know? And even when there wasn't a live audience, they would put canned laughter in. Yeah, because right. it became, it was the expectation, right? Yeah. But if you think about it now, when you watch a show, how weird is it that there's people you can't see laughing? But I think it was a natural transition, wasn't it? Before TV, people went to place. Yeah. You know, and they, they, they just reacted as an audience. So yes. it was very natural to be laughing along with someone like right next to you <laughs> I feel that's how it transitioned at least um, but I mean it's that's it's taken from the American system mm-hmm. which evolved from the 30s or 40s mm-hmm. yeah Lucille Ball and, you know all those early sitcoms so that was how uh, it progressed in in the US yeah Th- that's what I actually thought is quite amazing about you Nick because you, you started off as this doing other things then you went in to become a cast under one roof and then you went on to do your own, th- uh, your own, of course, business owner. So I guess our, our listeners may want to know, and some they may be interested to know, how did you um, know, and how did you end up pivoting a business in so many forms over the years? You know, the funny thing is that uh, I've been asked that question before, and I said uh, it was natural progression. And uh, when I started, I started as a DJ, a mm-hmm. club DJ, and I said oh, it was just natural progression. I became. Uh, radio DJ and I became an MC and then I became an actor and then I started producing and then until one day somebody came to me and said um, that's actually not not natural it's not natural <laughs> it's, not, it's not and then I thought about it I'm like hmm, yeah, maybe some of my peers are still DJs <laughs> they, did, they just that's all they did so I think probably the answer is I'm, I, I actually get bored very easily so I'm always looking for something new to do so I just always kept looking at for example when i was an actor in the studio and under one roof i think i was the most curious about how the cameras worked how they did the boom how they built the sets you know so i would like go behind and and i talk to the camera guys and the set guys Mm -hmm. and i just like you know study everything and the 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 very first comment i made about the pilot when we did the pilot viewing they sat the cast down and we watched the whole thing and they asked for comments and I believe I was the first person to comment and the first thing I said was I think the lighting could be better (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing multiple shadows (laughs) I think we can uh, soften that a little bit which is a very weird thing for an actor to say about the pilot of a show so was there a moment during the show when you especially since you guys were the the pioneer uh, sitcom uh, in Singapore, was there a moment where you thought, okay, yeah, this this show actually could work. This is this is gonna be great. Right after the pilot aired, and then we were on the nine o'clock news as the highest rated show 
ever. And then I thought, hmm, I think people liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, I think this might be good. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, I thought it was going to be a short gig, like mm. one year maybe. And I really, I nobody knows how much I sacrificed for that one year, right? I sold my partnership in any company uh, to commit to it, and then they got delayed for months. I sold my car because I wasn't getting any income anymore. Um, and that year, where I shot the pilot season, I made like uh, the whole year. I made like a four-digit income. That's what I was paid for the first season. So. Do you consider that more of your lowest points then? <laughs> Ironically. Financially, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, of course, it quickly turned around mm. because when the show is so successful, you start getting a lot of um, incidental income, mm. endorsements, appearances, you know. Suddenly, those things were making up for the. Uh, extremely low salaries that were being paid. What do you think is the mo most important thing that someone, I mean, if you were in that, uh, someone in your shoe is a comedy act in a live studio audience uh, environment, what's the most important thing they need to know? Other than I'm going to get four digit salaries for the first season. <laughs> well, what, what do they need to know? Most, what the most important thing an actor in Singapore needs to know is you're not going to get paid very well. That's number one. Yeah. And number two is you, you're not going to get paid well. So why do you choose that though over what you were doing previously? No, because it's interesting for me. Uh, anything new, I'm uh, I'm all in. I'm so it's that the itch you had where you yeah. had to like. Yeah. No, that's why I'm willing to give up. Because I mean, honestly, I'm not the kind of person who really cares about accumulating wealth. You know, to me, money is meaningless. By itself, it's meaningless. It's what you do with it that, that matters, right? And if you don't have it, then you just don't do anything. Uh. <laughs> but uh, to answer your question, right, I think you're asking me, like, if for aspiring actors, yes. what do you need to have yeah. specific to comedy? Okay, I think um, a lot of people don't realize that comedy actually is very serious business. People who try to be funny are never funny. And so in comedy, you have to take you have to take your performance very seriously. You have to understand that acting is actually no different whether you're doing drama or comedy. It's exactly the same. Well, almost exactly. I would say in, in live sitcom, there's a lot of timing that's involved mm -hmm. in the delivery. Uh, but in drama, there is too, right? So it's it's not very different from drama at all in that you need to you need to take the lines very seriously. Uh, you need to have an understanding of the character's motivation, the backstory, you know, um, how you're driving the story of that episode. You know, there's a lot of things that not necessarily every actor thinks about, but I think about when I, when I deliver a line that makes it, um, people find it funny, but it's actually, it's, it's understanding how the situation is unfolding. There was one particular episode in Under One Roof where I only had one line. The whole episode, I only had one line. And we were a very competitive cast, okay? <laughs> we are always competing on who can get the scene in one take, uh, you know. But we at the same time, we were also very... Um, we had this thing going on where the technically, if you had the fewest lines for the episode, 
you were the highest paid actor for that week because <laughs> you're getting paid for the yeah, least amount line. of work. <laughs> so that week, I was the highest paid member of the cast. I had one line. And I remember thinking, well, I, I have to make the most of it, right? So I kept thinking the whole week. Imagine I spent four days of rehearsal and one day recording it, just thinking about how I would deliver this one line. And then when I actually did it in front of the live audience, it had a huge laugh, you know? And for me, that personally, that was, <laughs> was quite an achievement, you know? Because the scene really was, I, I would go, I would just step out of my room. I'd open the fridge, I'd look inside, and I'd say, hey, cheesecake. That was my entire line. And the whole audience burst out laughing. Can you imagine how much work it takes to make that work? <laughs> For me, I was like, wow, they thought that was really funny. I must be doing something right. <laughs> and it wasn't even a full line. It was like two words. Yeah. <laughs> but internally, right, as the actor, what was I thinking? I was just thinking, I'm really so hungry. And I'm, I just like, I'm hoping there's something in the fridge that I really like. You know, and I open it and it's it's cheesecake and Ronnie really likes cheesecake. And so the reaction was just kind of like natural and like overexcited. It's like so excited over something as mundane as cheesecake. And that's why they laughed. So, so in a sense, you're saying comedy acting is almost not being funny. I mean, you're not trying to be funny. I mean, it's a genuine reaction, right? It's not about trying to be funny. It's about really being true to the character within the story itself, like drama or any other kind of acting. It's, it's exactly that. Do you think that we'll ever see something as classic again like as Under One Roof? And how, how have you seen audience taste changing over the years? I mean, the taste has changed. I mean, they've been fed a diet of, uh, you know, they have so much variety now, right? With, uh, what is it, Netflix and Disney Plus and HBO and so many uh, world-class shows that are available. Um, that really, I think for the local, um, for the local business, there's no hope really. There's no. <laughs> I don't mean to sound optimist, uh, pessimistic, but there's really no hope um, for local production. And when, especially when the audience is exposed to world class programs like twenty four seven, how can you hope to compete? But now, the entry point to come into media, we've seen people with just a phone you know, or a single camera, single mm -hmm. mic, being able to make things that just people want to watch. Do you think that's beneficial in any way that's going to help? I think it expands your options. Mm. If you like watching crap, yeah, <laughs> by all means. There's a market for crap. People make it, people watch it. Uh, people put ads on it. But it's crap. You know, if, you know, it's like I'm reminded of my dearly departed father whose main choice of entertainment was wrestling. And uh, when I took him to the premiere of the, f the first feature film that I was in, which was called City Shots, at the end of the show, the lights came up, and I was like, so what do you think? He said, I prefer wrestling. Oh. Yeah. So, so being on that show, I knew how hard everybody worked to put the show together. Yeah. yeah. I like that show. There are always going to be people who prefer WWE, right? I mean, there's an audience for everything, right? There is, there yeah. is. Yeah. So you've been producing with uh, with Triple X, I guess, for, for more than 20 years already. Uh, 
19. 19, mm -hmm. coming to 20. Most businesses don't last 19 years. Mm -hmm. What, you know, and so I think that it's, it's great that you've got it running for that many years. What is actually your secret to, you know, being this entrepreneur for 19, going on 20 years? Uh, diversification. As a freelancer, for which I was a freelancer for 12 years, huh? Um, I did many different things. I was uh, not just an actor, I was also a writer, I was a host, I did voiceovers, uh, I did some producing, you know, there's at least five different things there. Um, then when I started the production company, I also started doing my own camera work, my own editing, before I could afford editors and cameramen, right? Mm -hmm. Do it all yourself. Then you learn how to do it and then you have multiple skills. So, you know, some months you have nice VO jobs, that's great. Other months you have no VO jobs at all. So if your only job was a voice talent, <laughs> you, you, what, what do you do, right? But if you do a lot of different things, then you know you can always rely on. So when I ran my business, it was the same thing. Mm. I didn't want to just do like uh, one kind of video. I did different kinds of videos. And apart from doing videos, we also did events. And then we also sort of merged videos into events. Yeah. And then uh, we also started doing design work. So I actually have three companies. One does videos, one does events, and one does design work. And I mean, the past year yeah. has so been the past really year, difficult. The events business just died, right? Yeah. Sometime in late Feb, early March, everything got canceled. Boom. <laughs> I mean, of course, it was tough, right? We were all just trying to figure out how long is this going to last, what are we going to do? But uh, actually, we started experimenting meeting with people, finding out what's everybody doing to cope, mm. and uh, even doing some tests, some some like pilots and stuff in people's studios. Uh, videos started coming in, like fast and furious, and then like nonstop, and then hybrid events, you know, as people were allowed to come in again. And then all of these things just started happening, and like, it's, it's so busy now. It's so busy, like my Q1 is equivalent to the whole of last year oh. in terms of uh, revenue. Oh. So uh, for me, you know, it was, um, it was very fortunate. I lost an entire team, the entire events team uh, is gone. But then the, uh, the video team is like so busy, right? Mm. Yeah. So is that like the advice you give to aspiring entrepreneurs and how to diversify as yeah, much as Yeah, absolutely, can. absolutely. I mean, you talk about pivoting. Yes and no, but pivoting suggests that you're doing one thing and then you're responding to a situation and then you're trying to do something else. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying don't do one thing, do three things. Then at least if one dies, you still have two legs to stand so, on. It's concurrent. And not, unlike pivoting whereby you implies you leave one behind and start something yeah, else. Yeah. Concurrent, concurrent. Yeah, that's interesting because we speak to a lot of freelancers, yeah. right? And this is something that we see as a trend nowadays as well because when clients come, they don't want to look for three different people in order to do three things for one project. Mm. They just want to speak to one person most yeah. of the time just to complete that one project. And so that diversification mm. as a company, I think it's very important, mm -hmm. or even as an individual, individual mm -hmm. freelancer. All the one-trick ponies basically just like yeah, <laughs> right? it's like you want to help them also cannot because I have you're too expensive for that one thing that you do already. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, you have. I mean, even though you say you get bored easily, mm. you stuck in it for almost twenty years, and do you see yourself 
changing anytime soon. Yeah. Because it's never been boring. It's always been something new. Every project is something new. We do anywhere from 100 to 200 projects a year. So there's always uh, there's always something new. I mean, there are some projects where I don't even I don't even I haven't even <laughs> seen the end product. You know, I come across a video sometimes. I'm like, at, maybe I'm at, uh, for example, uh, some hospital, yeah. and then my team says, "Hey, our videos on the playing on the wall." I'm like, we made that. <laughs> I've never seen this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and so was producing it. So and so was directing. I'm like. He directed? <laughs> Who allowed that to happen? <laughs> yeah. You, they most likely have like, quite, he doesn't know. Let's just do this. <laughs> Behind my back. <laughs> so moving forward, what do you see? You know, what's in it for you, Nicholas Lee? Mm. What, what do you hope to see for yourself? Especially, you know, most likely after this, you know, we're not going to see, I think, much changes for the next couple of years. But what do you see yourself doing then, at least for the near future? I think um, there's definitely an uptrend in hybrid events. And people are just going to become more and more experimental with, uh, and I'm <clears throat> actually in a, I'm, I'm very happy because I've been doing this for like over 10 years. You know, people talk about green screen like it's something new. Like we were doing this like 10, 20 years ago, we were doing green screen and AR and compositing and all that. And that's not new for us. So we have a lot of understanding of how that can be applied. So I think now's a great time for us to uh, lend our expertise to all these productions. So in the next few years, I think we're just going to continue doing more and more of these, hopefully bigger ones. Um, and then after a few years, I'm hoping to build a team again that's big enough to take over and so I can retire and just lie on a beach somewhere and just, you know, chill with a beer or something with my friend Sean. <laughs> and reminisce about the good old days. <laughs> but you're saying it's not, it's not new, of course, green screen, AR, but I think the whole pandemic just accelerated the, the, the whole perpetuation of this technology. Absolutely. You know, now I'm doing this series of shoots around Asia in studios remotely. I'm literally sitting on a sofa in my office looking at a 60, 70 inch TV screen where the camera feed is coming to me from Sydney or KL or wherever. And I was just thinking about 10 years ago, I flew to Vegas to shoot on green in a hotel in Vegas wow. because I needed to shoot 20 people from Asia who were all in Vegas for a conference. So it was easier for me to fly there with my team than for these 20 people to fly into like Singapore to shoot. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking, wow, now we don't even have to go to Vegas. <laughs> I'm just very curious to know, if, I mean, to see if people would start flying the same way we did again. I mean, in the sense that, you know, if you need to go to Vegas to shoot, that's wonderful. But I think that a lot, but going forward, I think there'll be a time where be, they'll be like, but why? And then you have having to justify all that is just going to make it too much of a hassle. Yeah, but I mean, if I were to compare in terms of cost, it's actually cheaper to go to Vegas and shoot 20 people from, say, eight different countries mm -hmm. than it is to even do it remotely. So every country you need your own studio and crew. Oh. So that's, it actually costs so, more. So that's a misconception yeah. as well then. And a lot of people think virtual events should be cheaper than physical events. Again, that, that is a 
sort of a falsehood. The only thing you really save on is the airfare and the F&B and maybe the accommodation, which may seem like a lot. But then when you consider the amount of infrastructure that needs to be set up for uh, virtual events, you'll be quite surprised at how much these things can cost. So, yeah. Food for thought, people. Yeah. That, that is that is quite a misconception now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just like people say, like what we're doing in the podcast is easy, it's only audio, but there's a lot more to it as well, yeah. as Nick clearly found and out. Everyone is different, you know, everyone is different. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. I'm trying to document every single one with a schematic and every single one is different and I'm just like, how can this be? There must be a template somewhere. <laughs> how can it be different all the time? It's so hard. Yeah. But that's that's the beauty of it, right? But I think it's just because it's so new, everyone's trying something new. Yeah, you know, it can be done in so many different ways. Yeah. It's definitely tiring because everyone you have to start. Seems yeah. like you start over again, right? Yeah. yeah, but but I think that's the exciting thing about it. At the same time, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there are hundreds of uh, virtual event platforms available right now. Mm-hmm. Hundreds, each one with different feature sets and all that. So it's pretty crazy you know, whichever point of your life that you felt was the most uncool. I had a school holiday job once. I was uh, on a construction site and I was uh, in a workshop cutting aluminum sheets. (laughs) This was when the 70s? Probably late 70s, early 80s. No, late 70s. I think I was like 15 years old. And you're cutting, so you're cutting aluminum sheets? Yeah. Cutting aluminum sheets. And what are you telling yourself then? It's a pretty (laughs) job. Okay, but if now you could go back and tell that 15-year-old in that workshop Mm -hmm. cutting aluminum, what would you say? I'd say, um, good for you for quitting after two weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, how do you end up in that job anyway? I have to thank my dad again (laughs) for getting me a school holiday job. No, but what was it like for you anyway in school back in that time? I had a lot of fun in school. We were, I was in a rugby team mm. and uh, I did a bit of, I was also doing a bit of the drama thing, LDDS or whatever it was called. Uh, yeah, back at the so, time. So um, I had a great time in school. I mean, yeah, didn't study that much, but sure was fun. <laughs> what do you think was the coolest? I think acting is the coolest. Yeah. People ask to take pictures of you and all that kind of stuff. I think that's damn cool. Then how about the lowest, like, most uncool point? I think directing or producing. Really? Yeah. Why? Nobody gives you any respect. <laughs> <laughs> Especially no, but, the cast. First in, last out, no. and everybody swears at you. But, I thought it's, but in a sense, it's, it's an advantage because you have an acting background. You you clearly know your stuff as far as, far as you know, performance is concerned. So doesn't that give you an edge as well in this, in, you know, in this particular role? It's an advantage when it comes to the job, ah. but I mean, the question is, what do you think is the coolest? Ah? So I definitely don't think directing or producing is like the coolest. Nice. Even the grip is cooler than the producer. Oh, they, <laughs> yeah. That's just true. <laughs> yeah. but, I, I think the producer is the worst. To our, also to our listeners who, are, who may be wa- hoping to be like you one day, aspiring to be a comedy actor, or aspiring Why? to be Nicholas Lee. The <laughs> <laughs> listeners are aspiring to be. Like Change you. your aspiration. Oh. I hope you have a second job. There's a lot of downtime, <laughs> you know, make of full use of it. <laughs> the alternative, the alternative is don't do it in Singapore. Go to where they make movies and TV shows. 
you know, and therefore more opportunity and uh, better remuneration. But also a very slim chance unless you work very hard, do your networking, you're very savvy and you're actually very skilled at what you do. So basically, boils down to work hard. Diversify. Work smart. You work smart, diversify. Hopefully get lucky. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or aspiring to be a, a, a owner of a, of a company like Triple X or something. What, what, were you, what advice would you give to all, all these aspiring? No, don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't. Go, go get a regular job. Yeah. I don't know what a regular job is nowadays though. But uh, I'm assuming um, delivering food is pretty <laughs> steady, steady work. It is. This shoot has been carried forward by the food delivery. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Those are the guys that keep us going, right? <laughs> Essential workers. Yeah. For aspiring entrepreneurs, um, if you are hardworking and you're smart, you can give it a shot and you have a 50-50 chance. But if you're dumb and lazy, then don't bother. You'll never make it. <laughs> Simple. But it's the hard work, right? For a lot of people already, they just feel like, I don't want to do that. I just want to do yeah. what I do best. It's not for everyone. A lot of people can't handle uh, the stress of doing different things. They can only focus on doing one thing at a time. That's okay because, you know, that's, that's how some people are programmed. But in a way, that's psychology, right? If you take the path of least resistance, you know, let's let's go for the lowest hanging fruit. It's the safest. But they do, but sometimes it's not the ripest. You know, when you pluck the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, life is short. You know, if you don't make the most of it by learning as much as you can, mm-hmm. as fast as you can, then you're not really making the most of your life. Mm. Yeah. So where can our fans and your fans, most importantly, find you on social media? My Instagram would be Nick Lee seven seven eight eight. I think. I think my Facebook would be just my name, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Unless I'm pretending to be someone else. Like Unless, yeah. Tom Cruise or something like that. I like the 7788. <laughs> 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 because common name, right? So I have to put a number behind. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nick, for coming out to Uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that the name of the show? It is, is the, the name, name of, of the, the show. show. <laughs> is that why I'm on this? It's cool to be Uncool. <laughs> If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to The Uncool or rate us 5 stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Freelance Creative Exchange and you can find more episodes of The Uncool or others in our series. And then you click follow. Also, share with us and celebrate the uncool moments by going to any social media platforms and using the hashtag FCEUncool. We want to hear from you and remember, it's cool to be uncool.